Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, A.L. Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. You know us for Nail the Mix, but today I'm here to tell you about Ultimate Drum Production, a brand new course that's going to completely transform the way you think about and record drums. You're going to be hearing a lot more about it in the coming weeks, but in the meantime, head over to ultimatedrumproduction.com to learn more. All right, so today on the URM podcast, I've got a really great producer whose work I've loved for years, Mr. Sean O'Keefe. And if you don't know who he is, I'm sure you've heard of what he's worked on. He's best known for work with Fallout Boy, Hawthorne Heights, and Plain White Tees, as well as Motion City Soundtrack, Less Than Jake, and a whole lot of other amazing bands. He's gone gold multiple times. And this is just a cool episode for people who want to have, I guess, the veil pulled up from over their eyes about what to actually expect when you experience some success. Some people think that the moment you experience success, you kind of don't need to work very hard anymore. And we go into some of the realities of what it's like after you do get a big record. Is your studio going to be completely booked or not? Like, what kind of things can you even worry about? We also talk about his whole history and his taste for analog gear, his production philosophies, just all the above. And it's a great episode. I hope you enjoy it. And here we go. All right. So Sean O'Keefe, welcome to the URM podcast. I appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. My pleasure. Um, I want to get right to it. Uh, you've worked with some of the uh, most iconic bands in rock or subgenres of rock in like the past 15 years. When you got started on the path to of production, is that something you anticipated happening? Is this something you went for? Or is this something that just kind of developed naturally through relationships? And Yeah, I would say the third one, yeah, developed naturally. Um, yeah, let's see. I didn't, uh, I'm trying to think about went for, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I was just going for, um, you know, like everybody else, I, I, I just wanted to, to record and, and, uh, work on as, as good a stuff as possible. Um, that was the only intention, I suppose. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask is because I find that some producers are like way more just artistically driven. And like you said, they just want to record the best stuff possible and they do a really good job and are cool to hang out with. And eventually they meet like a band that takes off and, everything works out whereas i they're also dudes who of course they're artistically minded and musically minded but i they're like i need to have this number of plaques on the wall oh. i need to i need to like complete this many goals by this certain date and i will achieve it through x yeah um you know well <laughs> i mean there's no doubt about it that, like, you know, when when I got when I received my first gold record, that was a that was a, a nice like experience, and it was like, wow, that's it felt good, you know, um, and um, was it like a validation? Maybe, maybe in some way, like. Um, uh, Honestly, I don't really remember. I, I remember the day it showed up uh, to my house. I was making a record there, but I don't. I guess I don't think so. Maybe finding out that it went gold or something, it was. But um, I suppose at that point, you know, 
people had already told me like you're going to you know this this record is going to go gold i I actually remember sitting like in a a a tour bus with somebody uh maybe three or four months before and he you know he he was a manager and he's he was just saying, "Oh, that, that record's on autopilot, and this this thing is you're gonna go gold, or you know, and like those things don't, I don't know, especially at that age, they don't really register, um, and it just kind of passes you by. It's all, it's it was great, it's great, but um, but yeah, I mean, I guess getting back to your question, when I when I actually think of um, before all that happened um, uh, and what it was like, it. Honestly, I can't say that it was really any different than it is like today where, um, you know, the goal really was like finding an opportunity to work with a band that I that I liked. And if if you could accomplish that, that was a great thing. And then and then if if you were able to find a band that you liked, um, I guess being able to just uh, or really just like um, just being able to follow through and do the very best that you can. I think that was the goal. It's like, you know, when, when I set out to make that, the, uh, the Fall Out Boy record in particular, but really all of them, the, the goal is just to, <laughs> I want to make this as good as we can possibly make it. I mean, that's kind of the, that's the goal for sure. Um, and then as, as far as like a goal of that end result Doing something um, or having a certain kind of a separate of, thing, de- definitely, yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's it's really somebody else's job, you know, or decision after that. Yeah, it it is kind of out of your hands in a way. And I think that that's actually um, kind of a positive thing for producers to learn how to differentiate because I think it, it goes down to like this like the smallest everyday things like sending off a mix uh, to get feedback from an artist or something, you have no control over how they're going to react. You know, having a label here for the first time, no idea how they're going to react, you know, whether or not a band is going to break up in the first six months after you recorded them. Like that's, that kind of stuff is totally out of your control. And I find that, Worrying about that kind of stuff, I mean, I think you should worry about it to a certain degree. Hmm. Um, not to let opportunities pass you by, not to make the most of them, but maybe worrying about it too much can cause a little too much stress and uh, <laughs> worry and distraction from what's really important. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I do feel like it's a that's a fine line. You know, it's like um, I. I always worry with basically everything, but like, um, but I mean, like you said, when you send off a mix or, or whatever, and anything, it's it's always like there's always anxiety attached to it, and I think, I mean, at least for me, part of that is that you've you've created something or you've been a part of creating something, and like you said, then you lose you lose all say in it at that point, and somebody else gets to, to tell you what they think. And that's like you're putting your stuff out there. That's totally, to me, overwhelming and nerve-wracking. And when it comes back and it's positive, it's amazing. And, and it feels incredible. And it's like it's one extreme. And when it comes back and it's negative, it, it's like a, an assault on your, like, everything, you know? And it's, it's, it's hurtful, and it's a hard... At least for me, that, that's a hard balance, you know, to try and um, kind of keep like um, 
just keep a middle ground there because uh, yeah, it's you know, <laughs> you're just you're really just creating something and, let, and somebody else is going to decide. You know, you know, you know what's funny is um, I've been just through doing like this podcast and our and like the educational part of it, like now the mix near academy we've been around so many mixers and then also back when i was mixing professionally um and working under people it's it's funny how no matter where people are at in their career they still take it personally yeah like the the i think sometimes people would like to think that they separate themselves from the outcome but I mean, we're talking about art. So yeah. I think the it's hard to separate yourself. I mean, but you have to do a certain point to be able to just, you know, get through Definitely. the project Definitely. and get onto the next one and not procrastinate sending off the mixes in the first place. Definitely. And and I do I do feel like at least in my like in my experience, um, when enough when enough good feedback comes in um, over the course of time, I think that helps you kind of build your confidence as you're moving forward to to at least know that, um, yeah, I guess to, to like eliminate like the extreme amount of worries, like you said, so you can still, you need to be able to focus on what you're doing. And I think that's super important. And, and maybe I have to just remind myself that not every one of those is going to be like a home run or something like that. Um, but still, I mean, that's kind of our, our job, I think. And an artist's job is just to, you just, you need to put your all into it and, and do your best and, and, you can't, yeah, you can't let it distract you from that. That would, that would be really difficult or bad. <laughs> you know, uh, this reminds me of uh, an interview I read like 10 years ago or more. And I forget which producer it was, but he worked on an Alanis Morissette record in the, uh, in the 90s. And I think that he did the first mix of the album and got fired like that day for it. <laughs> like, like she hated it, like fucking hated it. And, uh, he didn't think there was anything wrong with it. He stood by it. Um, which is, which is interesting because, you know, it, the general practice, at least now is if, uh, you get mixed notes, you do the mixed notes and, yeah, uh, totally. you, you know, you fix the mix for the, for the artist, but man, I don't remember who this was. I wish I did. It was just so long ago, but I just remember reading like it had her take on it and then his take on it. And he was just like, they, you know, they can go fuck themselves. That mix was perfect. <laughs> uh, I, there were no changes I was going to make to it. Um, I don't care. She didn't like it. Yeah. And wow. her side was, he totally missed the point. <laughs> it was not it didn't even sound like the same band uh and literally was fired that day so i just think it's All right. i think there's a point where the confidence goes too far possibly <laughs> totally yeah there's uh that reminds me of something if you don't mind i'm gonna uh give you a little, a little story because um and i didn't know that we were gonna go uh 
you know, uh, talking about this, but, uh, but yeah. So when I, speaking of the, the fallout boy record, um, when I did that, actually, we, um, well, we, we did a few of the songs like first, um, as like, uh, I guess demos, but those ended up being on the record, but, but then we went forward and we, they got signed, we made the rest of the record and, um, they, the record company had booked, um, a, a tour for the band right after, and, and they were really up against like a deadline. And the only way that we were able to make it work was, um, that the band had to go on tour literally the day after that we finished recording the record. And anyway, point is, it meant that I had to mix the record on my own while they were on tour. Um, and those were the days where there was basically no, there was no, as far as I knew, sending internet mixes. There was certainly no recall. It was all analog console. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of the anxiety, uh, I, yeah, so I had to, I had I to mix, imagine. I had to mix that whole record uh, by myself and print all the mixes, knowing that there w- could never be a recall on anything by myself while the band was gone. And this was like their, you know, their debut record. And, um, and I think I must've been nervous, but I also was so excited that maybe that like kind of just stood in front of, of the nervousness. But anyway, um, I do remember when I finished, um, and I, I was like going insane, you know, I was like up till a seven in the morning. And I remember the assistant would walk in the next morning and, and I'd play and I'd be like, what do you think of this? And he'd be like, dude, you gotta go to sleep. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, I do remember the band, uh, they came home like after a few weeks from tour and that was the first time they heard their record and I had to bring them into the studio and hit play and there was no changing it. And that was definitely a nerve wracking moment. Um, And I'm just sitting there going, but I didn't have the feeling of, to be honest, of like, my, my feeling at that point was, I hope they like it, you know, like, I really hope it wasn't like a, this is it and fuck you, but they were my friends, you know? And, um, yeah, and thankfully they liked it, you know, um, and it was okay. And uh, and I think we made a couple of changes. They wanted a few things louder, and so we literally they just they sang them again, and we added them to the two track, you know, um, a couple of screams or something uh, at mastering. <laughs> um, that's uh, that's fortunate. That's very very fortunate that they they liked it. They liked it. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> it, Speaking of getting to that point, um, so that was like the early 2000s. How long had you been recording before that? And I guess also how long had you been recording professionally before that? Yeah, not not long. <laughs> um, I mean, I was, uh, yeah, I think we did that in 2002, and I was 22 years old uh in 2002 so oh wow yeah (laughs) so not not long i mean um you know i started right after right i don't know what is considered professional but like uh i guess getting paid anything okay yeah i guess i two years maybe um yeah because i was an intern um yeah two or three years you know i was an intern that i started making recordings like for money probably around 1999 or 2000 um and then we did that two years later. So, yeah, not, not very long. <laughs> wow. So that happened fast. Yeah. Yeah. Did uh, did you record through high school to where you knew you wanted to pursue this path? Or did the internship thing just kind of 
materialize like it does for some people? Um, no, I recorded through high school. Yeah, I was um, I was like like most you know recording guys. I was uh, in bands in high school. I was uh, I was a drummer in a few like like punk rock bands, um, and I love that. And I think probably you know from an earlier age, I knew music was something. At least I thought at that time, music is what I want to do probably like a lot of kids do, but like, um, Mm -hmm. I can't say I knew that that was going to be my profession, but, um, I knew I wanted to do it. And, um, uh, let's see. And then, yeah, sometime in high school, I, I, it's hard to, I have a terrible memory with this stuff, but I remember it as like, um, like around like 15, 16. And, uh, specifically because it's when I got my license is when, I just remember driving in my brother's car and I would listen to uh, tapes or CDs all the time. And that's when I, I'm pretty sure I totally fell in love with the sonics of like recordings. And like, cause to me, that was like the first time where I could literally like kind of like feel the music of the recording. You know, mm-hmm. it's like in a car, you turn it up. And, and to this day, it's, it's the same thing. It's my favorite thing to do is drive and listen to music. Um, but, um, and I think that's what kind of got me interested in like what is this process and how does that work uh and there was um uh i think it was for my 16th birthday i asked my mom uh as a present if if she would have my take my band into the studio for a a day or a weekend it was two days and it was this guy's like basement studio and um in a nearby basement studio and to me it was like the, the coolest thing ever and um yeah, and I, I'm pretty sure it was that that got me hooked on recording. And so I, I borrowed like a, a friend's four track and um, was recording like you know just cassette two tracks mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. So anyway, to answer your question, yeah. So I, there, I definitely, I had experience and I had, and I spent all my time doing it. And I made a lot of recordings in high school for my band and other band, all kinds of stuff. Um, and. So it wasn't just um, starting as an internship. Like going into the internship, I think I think it's safe to say without like ego involved that I was probably pretty noticeably farther along than most of the interns at the studio. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. Um, how, how did that come along the internship? And I know that is completely different back then than it would be now, but yeah. still just for. Um, so just for the record, how did yeah, that come yeah. along? Yeah. Um, well, out of high school, I was, um, I was supposed to go to college. My dad was, you know, insistent that I go to a college and, um, and even though I wanted to do recording and music. And so we settled on a local college here in Chicago called Columbia college. And it's like an arts mm-hmm. kind of college. Yeah. And they have a recording program. And, and so, uh, I signed up for that recording program and I started going and within the first, um, maybe, I don't know, three or four weeks or something like that. Um, I really hated it. And or, or, I, it's not that I hated it. I just didn't feel at home and I didn't, it, it, it sounds so wrong to say, but it felt really slow to me. And I, I you know, I Dude, was, I was an anxious. I, I, I hated, uh, I went to Berkeley. I dropped out for very similar reasons. It was just so slow and boring. I couldn't, Hmm. I couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. You want to get to the recording, the good stuff, you know? And I, I've been doing that and I had a little setup where I lived and, uh, and so, and I was recording and all I could think to myself was, I just need to, 
uh, I want to be recording all the time. And um, and so I was driving to school one day and I just couldn't let I was I just couldn't bring myself to go. But I also <laughs> couldn't bring myself to not go without a plan. And so I decided I would justify it if I went to the there's like a local newspaper at that time that had all the recording studios in the ad section. And I said, I'll, I'll call all the studios I can and try and get an internship um, and that'll justify me uh, not going to back to recording school. And that, that's what happened. Um, and I called and left messages. And it, it took about four or five months. And um, and eventually I got a, an internship at a studio um, in Chicago called Gravity Studios, which was the place that I worked out of um, and made uh, tons of re- records at for probably the first six years of my career. Um, How was your dad about the dropping out of school and getting an internship thing? Was that <laughs> easy to explain, or uh... well, uh, not really, because I didn't explain it to him at first. Uh, <laughs> actually, yeah, I um, I didn't tell him, and uh, to to be totally honest, so the deal in our family was that uh, as long as I was in school, he would pay for my rent, and and I lived. In like it was actually it was an office, it was an it was a two two office office building, and I rented the office. There was a shower, but no kitchen. But I lived there because after five o'clock on Monday through Friday, no, nobody else was there, and I could make noise. So I lived in this little office to, so I could have band practice and make records at night. But my dad was paying my rent and I didn't want to tell him I wasn't going to school because I would no longer have rent money. Ride would end. So I didn't. And, uh, and then when the semester ended and he asked for my report card, I had to tell him then that I didn't go. And that's when the rent got cut off. And I really, that's actually really what made me force me to do it for a living. And I, I, uh, I put out a little ad in the newspaper saying I could, you know, I have a recording studio and I I really hustled and I that's really when I started full-time making records because I had no more income <laughs> it's um, funny what people can pull off when they have no choice yeah yeah they really decide to do it um, how long was it between getting your rent cut off till uh, you could support yourself from it probably Probably a few months, um, and and in all fairness, I was delivering pizzas on the side uh, during there, is like so I could eat. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, I, I I've thought about this because people have asked me this. I literally don't remember the exact. I can't remember if I quit the pizza gig before or after that, but it was yeah somewhere in there. It was not in that range. Yeah, I mean it, it really had to be. Um, yeah, uh, but I was lucky. I I played in bands and I. Um, well, first of all, that the rent was cheap, but also, um, you know, I, I was playing in bands, and I was in a I was in a circle of musicians in bands, and um, uh, I knew a lot of people, and I was lucky that a lot of people came and asked me to to do the recording. So, um, you know, I feel like that's a huge advantage anybody has. I think, especially being younger and recording, is that you're. You, or if you are, it's it's probably a little bit easier to be part of a musical community because um, that's your that was my world. It was hanging out in basement shows and and you know playing in bands and you're just surrounded by it every single day. So you know what I mean? Like, um, it's a, absolutely. Yeah, we've always told people that um, they really want to accelerate their 
their progress in terms of getting recording clients. Uh, one of the best things you can do is play in a band, be a musician, and be active. Uh, play gigs and Definitely. go to shows and just be a, be an organic part of that community. Yeah. Not Don't try to insert yourself in a weird way. Without uh, it, yeah. And, yeah, and pass out awkward business cards. Uh, like, actually... Totally, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually be a part of the community by being a musician. Yeah. 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 And it's like, and also to me, that's it really, that's kind of like, that's the joy of it. You know, it's like, it's, it's really fun to be a part of something, I think. And like, and yeah, like those are good people to me, you know, like having musicians in people like that around as your friends, they're just good times, you know, it's like that, that's a good time. Um, and and, it, and you're right. It, I think it it totally it pays off in an organic way without having to be the like the business guy with the card or something. Yeah, the, the awkward business card <laughs> totally, guy. Yeah, <laughs> that like the, uh, we never want to be. You know. No. Yeah. Ab- absolutely not. Yeah. Like a, like a nam punisher. <laughs> it just it just doesn't it it just doesn't really work and totally. nobody likes it. Totally. So when. So were Fallout Boy just like a part of that same community you were a part of, same circles and yeah, yeah they they were. Um, I I had recorded um, uh, each one of them individually in a separate for in a separate band before Fallout Boy, uh, which is kind of funny actually. So Patrick was a drummer in a band. Um, PDA, I think is what it was called. It's uh, <laughs> a good name. Andy Hurley and uh, Pete Wentz were in at least one band called Arma Angelus, which was like a hardcore band that I, I made at least at least one record for. Um, and Joe Troman was in another band that I don't remember the name of, but I also recorded. And I, I went to high school with Joe. Um, but yeah, so I I knew all of them. They were all part of that circle. We would all see each other at these basement shows and, and things like that, um, and um, and then and then specifically, uh, Pete was hanging out during um, a record I made right before Fall Out Boy's record uh, called this band called Knockout at the time. Uh, Pete was friends with him, and he was hanging out a lot at the studio, and and that's when he he told me about Fall Out Boy and played me the cassette or gave me the cassette tape and you know asked if I would record him so. Yeah. So, um, so follow up boy happens, and I, I'm going to condense some time here. But then, sure. Yeah. Gold records happen, and uh, you did say that you were too young to really get it totally. But just thinking back, do you think there is any myths about what a gold record does, or any truths to what it does for your career? Yeah. Um, well, I think um, I suppose that the miss, you know, might be, or or the thought might be that a gold record can skyrocket your career, or maybe that you're rich from a gold record, um, or not. If if I'm missing any, please let me know. Um, but or that everything's just gonna the struggle is over. The struggle's over. Okay, totally. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> The struggle is over is, is totally untrue, um, and the you're going to get rich is also untrue. Um, and 
whatever the first one was, I can't remember. But skyrocket your career. Yeah, and there's there's some there's some there's it definitely will elevate it. Definitely, or at least in my case, it elevated it. And um, so, yeah, I th- I think that it's not everything that TV uh, might you know make people believe it is or something like that. But um, but on the other hand, it definitely has a lot of benefits to it for sure. I, I've noticed. So um, I think that. I think when you have made a, a gold record, you know, um, that uh, some people might take you more seriously. Um, you know, uh, some people might expect uh, that you're going to cost more or, or be OK with the fact that you you're, you're you cost more. Um, some people um, trying to think um, you, you will, at least depending on your deal, you'll earn some money, you know, and, I, you know, don't get me wrong. Every dollar I've ever received from that has been amazing and still is to this day um, and is appreciated. But it's um, it's not, you know, you're not going to you're not going to quit your job. Um, so, so it sounds like it's basically giving you the opportunity to do more work and better work. But it's not like big time. Yeah, it's not going to put you in a jet or anything. <laughs> no, it's not going to do that. And but man, I mean, it, it's great. It's a great. It's a great thing if you can do it. I think. Um, I always say this to people, um, and, and I don't want to focus too much because I know the question wasn't based too much on the money of it. But you know, people will ask me today, um, you know, about like a production deal they're they're doing or something like that, mm-hmm. and and, um, and they're and. With the hopes that you know, the, 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 usually the question always is, "Well, what if it's a gold record?" You know, I don't want to lose out on all that money. Um, and my 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 response is always the same, which I and I really do feel this way, which is, um, I wouldn't go crazy over your deal um, trying to secure you know X amount of points or whatever over this. Uh, I wouldn't jeopardize the project based on that because. In my experience, if you have such a successful record, uh, the the amount of work and um, opportunity it will bring you is so much greater than the monetary mm-hmm. value of, of that specific thing. So uh, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, so there is a lot of leverage I think that you can have, but um, also with it comes a lot of responsibility because you know it's when the next person that comes to hire you uh, comes to you and says, "Well, you've you've made." you know, X amount of hit records. Um, we're going to now pay you X amount of dollars. And we kind of expect that you're, you're going to give us a hit record. That's, yeah. that's a little odd because, um, it's a weird, it's a lot of responsibility, you know? Um, but you it, know, it's a good thing. I think I want to touch on what you just said before that though, because that's actually advice that I've given to a lot of people who are starting out because we get the question a lot from people like how do I negotiate a production deal with like local bands or how do I get you know make sure I get the points and all that and answer is usually I mean definitely you should worry about this at some point and you shouldn't let yourself get steamrolled but you can do a lot more damage than you realize by being a stickler about this stuff. And it's not necessarily worth, it's not necessarily worth it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I mean, like you said, the, uh, the jeopardizing the project 
is way worse than not making a royalty check because of the opportunities that way worse. the project will afford you. Way worse. And even more so, the the relationships that you you may and probably will develop with those people, if they go on to be successful, honestly, those relationships are very valuable. Hopefully, just in in the sense of just being a, a good, decent human and have a good relationship with them, but also professionally, those are huge. Those can bring big opportunity because if somebody goes to be successful, it probably means they have a lot of leverage or a lot of um, things they can offer for you to do. And if you're still connected with them personally or in their world or you did a good job, um, that's a lot of opportunity as opposed to if you were the bad guy, then they're going to leave you behind, you know. Um, and yeah, it's an important thing. It's a lot easier to also get the uh, the the points and all that once you've proven yourself. Definitely, yeah. Uh, Definitely, and it you know it's funny. It make being the bad guy makes me think of a situation I was in maybe six years ago when I was at a studio called Audio Hammer that did. Um, did some pretty decently big metal records. Um, and myself and the producer I was working under wanted to offer a spec deal to a friend of mine's band who was really, really good. Um, and I definitely do think that uh, to this day that uh, had we made that EP or whatever, or two or three songs, their songs were really long, that uh, we could have probably gotten them signed to a decent metal label and possibly could have had a future. Like, you know, obviously you never know, but they were that good. And we really wanted to make this deal. We really just wanted to make something cool with them and then just have the option of making the record. If they got picked up, we don't want any money, nothing. Hmm. But they got a student lawyer who was a buddy of theirs to look over this deal. And he literally marked up every other sentence. Yeah. It was so tedious to the point where we just dropped it. Like, I mean, we never told them we dropped it. We just suddenly got too busy. But we just let it go because it was just... It just wasn't worth it to uh, to fight over bullshit, over some something that you don't even know yeah. what's going to come of it. And uh, I, I always think back on that to where uh, nobody had any ill intent for it. We just wanted to make some songs with them and help them get signed. And uh, had they just been cool, it would have happened. Wow. Um, so I mean I I definitely think that that the idea of jeopardizing a project by being too much of a stickler on the business is very very it's very real. Yeah, yeah, it it is. It is. And it's too bad because I mean yeah. ultimately it's it's really a, like it's about being part of something and creating something great and and if that can't happen then not, none of it matters anyway, you know? So um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're not we're not in this to mark up contracts. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're I not. Hate it. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I ba honestly, I barely uh, do contracts anymore, um, and I don't know if that's something that like some people might not be pleased with me saying that, like my manager or lawyer. But like, um, it's. Uh, it's what just, up, Johnny Minardi? Yeah, hey, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> when, when Johnny's when when. 
when Johnny's uh, involved uh, and I'm lucky enough uh, to, to be doing those things with Johnny, uh, I'm thankful to have contracts and, and it's great. Uh, but um, yeah, it, I'm just not very good at, at being diligent about that. Um, well, I, I, I just, I feel like there's definitely, there's both sides of the coin with it where um, especially, you know, we're not talking about making a deal between Beats and Adidas. Right. We're, you yeah. know, we're yeah. talking about working with bands. And so generally, if someone doesn't intend to fulfill a part of the contract, it doesn't matter anyways. You're not going to get that thing from them. Mm. Like it's not it's generally not going to be worth taking them to court over it anyhow. Yeah. So yeah, if true. you're going to enter into a deal with somebody I mean, it's always good to have your ass covered, but for the most part, uh, you should trust the people that you're going to work with. Totally. And I'm not saying to be naive, but uh, going to court is really, really pricey. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The, no. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say not always worth it. And uh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. I, I think in literally every instance that has come up in my career that... Um, that's happened. I've bypassed court on all of them except for one, and and even one, it was a it was the biggest. <laughs> to be honest, it was the biggest record I had ever, biggest selling record I had ever made. Um, and um, I guess you know, in full disclosure, it was with the band Hawthorne Heights, and um, and the label didn't pay Hawthorne Heights or me, and and it was a platinum record, and we had to sue the record company, and it took two years, and. And it was a mess, and actually, and none of us, um, sadly, uh, the record company outspent the band. Um, and I think I'm allowed to say this because it's all long done at this point. But um, you know, the band they had to declare bankruptcy. They were so in debt with lawyers. Uh, speaking of lawyers' fees, I mean, like talking like just shy of a half a million dollars of unpaid attorneys' fees, um, and. Um, they had to declare bankruptcy, and because as a producer, typically, at least with all my deals, usually I'm, I'm a um, my deals with the band. Um, they wanted to pay me, but they didn't have. They weren't getting paid, so they couldn't pay me. So, and because they declared bankruptcy, um, and I'm a technically a creditor, then I can never get paid from that. So, um, so I, I never got a cent from it, and neither did the band, and we never will um, because of the the situation. Um, and it's so it's really unfortunate. But that's that goes to show that's even one where it's probably worth it to go spend the money in court. But even then, when the record company is so powerful and has so much money, it doesn't always mean you're gonna you're gonna succeed, even though there's a, a real contract. It's it's pretty disappointing. But yeah, there, there's only so far you can get against a multinational corporation. Yeah, and when they have so you know if they've if they've come off a hit record, you know uh, a platinum record, and and they they're sitting on seven or eight million dollars, you know they got a lot of money to burn. So um, and if the band's not getting paid, they got no money to spend. And so it's a it's a tough position to be in and i don't mean to, to no, bring this into I, a downer uh, dude, no, this is a great this is great stuff yeah. um i'm i appreciate you going into it you know this makes the whole a day to remember lawsuit against victory that much more impressive yeah big time yeah like the fact that they pulled that off is just incredible incredible yeah 
Yeah, that was. I, I remember seeing that. Uh, no pun intended. That was the date I remember for me because uh, it was like a couple of days before Thanksgiving. I think last year, um, or was it two years ago? Anyway, what, whatever. So in that range. Yeah, and my brother's an attorney, and I was at Thanksgiving, and, and I I had seen that that they won, and um, and I, I showed it to my brother. I said, "Do you remember, you know, the, the Victory Records lawsuit that I went through way back when?" And 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 it was funny because he uh, he said to me, <laughs> "I can't believe I'm going off on this tangent now," but uh, he said to me, um, "He goes, you know, depending on." Um, the situation with a data member's case, it might give you ground. It might give you grounds to bypass your statute of limitations on your case if it was. I, I'm, at this point, don't take anything I say literally because this is lawyer talk. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. But he was basically saying, um, if it was uh, found to be on some kind of fraudulent uh, behavior from the record company, it would undo. I think the statute of limitations on my case and Victory's case, and we could bring it back up and we could get. Our, our money and and he said that to me and to me it was like whole okay so if you've made a platinum record that is a good amount of money yes uh, it, especially all at once it definitely is and for me that's that's a ton and and so of course I, I was like whole like really is this really real and he's like I, you know it depends it depends on these laws and all that and he kind of left it there on the table and my brother's name is Gavin and I was like Gavin I don't mean to be pushy, but this isn't just a few bucks we're talking about here. Do you think you can look up these laws and see? Like, and he pulls it up on his phone, and he's like, "I'm sorry, it's it still doesn't. No, you can't do anything about it." And you know, it's, like, oh, it's too bad, but it's good for a day to remember, and that that's a great victory, and that's one for the artist, and and uh, I'm I'm very happy about that. Uh, yeah, it, it's just uh, I feel like it was you know a long time coming, and it even though they're the ones who benefited and not, you know, not the entire artistic community. I feel like that one in particular was kind of almost in the name of every single person who had somehow been dicked by that label. I think so. Which is a long list. I think it's the the roster, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I shouldn't say that. I don't know. But it's everybody I know, at least that I've worked for, that's been on that label or been on that label is part of that list. Um, I, I don't think we're talking about anything here that's not like common knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, it it kind of is what it is, and um, good for them. If you're like most producers, you're dialing a drum sounds the old-fashioned way by trial and error, swapping out drums heads, and mics until you finally find something that works, oftentimes for several exhausting and tedious days. Sound familiar, right? I know I have spent up to a week getting drum sounds in the past before I knew some of this stuff. So guess what? It doesn't have to be so painful. Ultimate Drum Production is our brand new course that teaches you the scientific method for dialing in the perfect drum sound on the very first try. Exactly, the first try, not the hundredth try. It explains in extreme detail the sonic character of every single component of drum sound with exhaustive profiles of every kind of drum head, shell material, bearing edge and hoop, as well as ridiculously detailed tutorials on mic selection, placement and room choice, editing, and mixing. And when you understand drum tone at such a fundamental, insanely deep level, it's like having a set of tone Legos you can use to easily build the sound you hear in your head. You don't need to guess and check. 
You just assemble the building blocks however you want. To find out more and get access to exclusive pre-order pricing, head over to ultimatedrumproduction.com slash pre-order and we'll see you in class. I want to actually talk about some recording stuff now. Sure, yeah. Um, so you've been at it for a while and obviously lots of stuff has changed um, over over the years, all the way from uh, you know Pro Tools becoming a thing <laughs> to uh, Pro Tools not being the main thing in studios anymore to uh, this home studio explosion. Just so many things. How many of these evolutions have you willfully adopted into your workflow, and how many of the uh, I guess workflows that you started with in more analog realm, uh, have you held on to? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. When I started, like um, professionally, it was the day. It was the days of um, of two inch twenty four track, um, and it was mm-hmm. in Pro Tools it was just coming into play, um, and so I learned essentially on um, uh, Studer whatever 827 and uh the studio gravity i was at was a, a neve uh old vintage neve so it was a classic 8058 you know um analog console and uh so i definitely learned doing that uh but like i said pro tools was just coming into play so records like fallout boy and, and those types of records usually the system back then was uh record the basics onto tape um dump them into pro tools uh slaved with pro tools um Locked, uh, and, they, and I remember that whole thing with the the time links and the black burst and getting them to lock perfectly uh, was the whole thing. But um, we do the vocals and editing and Pro Tools, and then at Mixdown it would be um, lock Pro Tools to tape, and it would be mixed from both of them. So we'd have uh, it always be Pro Tools slaving um, to the tape machine hit play on the tape, first 22 tracks or whatever, come back to the console, and then Pro Tools would have maybe at that point 16 outputs or something like that, and we'd run them both. Um, so that was, I, I would I think that's safe to say that was my first real workflow other than 100% analog, which which was, you know, happened for a couple of years. But, um, and, and that existed really only for a couple of years, then the next major change was, okay, replace the tape machine all in Pro Tools. You know, Pro Tools was the multi-track, but uh, even, I would say for a number of years, that was still, that system was still the uh, recorded into Pro Tools, use it mostly as a tape machine, as an editor, and um, and some some of like a, a sound processing tool, but always come back on the console um, and mix on the console. Uh, no no recalls at this point because I was I particularly was on that Neve or the other studio I worked in was a place called Smart Studios, which was owned by the iconic producer Butch Vig up in Madison, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, um, and they had this old Trident A range, which was like. 40 channel um, old beautiful analog console uh, and so anyway neither of those had uh, recall so everything I mixed this is probably until about 2007 or so somewhere in there was all just console based no recall that that was one workflow uh, and then right around there I was just thinking about this the other day actually that's when the next big change for me came in terms of a, a workflow um, evolution and that's when I 
I was actually seeing, uh, at, well, at Smart Studios, there's two rooms, and Butch, Vague, and his band Garbage would, generally speaking, be using the upstairs room, and I would be downstairs, um, me and the, whoever else would use that room. But um, And Garbage and Butch, those guys were big. Um, they were big on moving with technology. They were always ahead of everybody, as far as I could tell. Um, they were mixing hybrid and mixing Pro Tools before most mm-hmm. people. So I would see them, and, and I remember thinking, ah, you know, I think I could give this hybrid thing a shot. Let me let me try it. And so around 2007, I moved into a hybrid situation, which was the, um, you know, Pro Tools with a whole racks of outboard gear, you know, um, and going through that. And I, I probably did that for maybe maybe three or four years, I would say, uh, and kind of mess around with analog summing and stuff like that. Um, and then, I'm not sure if my timeline is perfect here, but like uh, that might have been about five years ago that that was the last change for me. And I went uh, 100% in terms of mixing, um, all in Pro Tools, um, no no analog anything, um, 100% in the, excuse me, in the box as they say it. Um, and... Yeah, in terms of the tech, the technology, those are the tech, technical changes, and then with them came the this transition from real studio to, um, I guess, project studio, home studio, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. And that really happened at the same time. Once I moved off the console, um, uh, my first hybrid studio was at home, uh, and and. It wasn't intended to be that way. I just had space and I could set it up. Um, and then throughout the years, I've moved that as I've moved. That's gone from like home to com- a commercial setting. Like I'm in now, I'm in an actual commercial building or, you know, it's not my home. But um, but I guess, you know, uh, it's the all in Pro Tools setup or whatever. So, so the fact that you had to... Um work with no recall for so long that definitely obviously forced you to commit to sounds um, and make confident choices. Is that something that even though you're in the box now, uh, even with a million options, do you still kind of keep that mentality of getting the sound, uh, committing to the sounds early? Yeah, I try. I definitely try, and I really like that. And um, it's funny you say that, specifically the word commit, because I just upgraded to Pro Tools 12, and they have the commit feature. I don't know if, you've, if you're a Pro Tools user or not. It's about time, right? I know, like, yeah, totally. I, I'm just saying, because I started, when I first started on a DAW, it was like Cubase SX or something long time ago, and they had the commit or the freeze function back then. How crazy. I can't, we're talking like 2003 or something. Yeah. I can't, how did Pro Tools just get it down? I know. It's like, every, <laughs> it, 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 totally. It's kind of funny. It's pretty funny. And it's so typical, but like, um, and I upgraded just for that one reason. And, and I was just making, I was just doing a tracking project and, and I was using it left and right. And I, I love it. And, um, and actually what I found was that, um, I will like we'll record something, and if I don't have if if part of the sound is going to be post with plugins, you know, um, which a lot of times it is for me, um, then I will commit that. And it's great that you can undo and go back, but I, I'm just starting to mix that stuff, and I love it because actually I would say 75% of what I committed, those are my tracks now. I have no interest in going back. I don't even want to know what I did to it. You know, it's like, um, mm-hmm. and so yeah, I, I try, and I, uh, and I think it's a good way to go. Um, I just it also makes me think I just did 
a record. Uh, we did the back half of it, and I'm, I'm doing the other half of it in a couple of weeks. Um, and By back half, you mean like... Oh, the- sorry, the front. I, I, I did half of it. Uh, uh, I did I track five songs, basically, of this one okay. record. Sorry, that was the wrong way to say that. Um, and then I'm doing the other half, the back half, uh, in, okay. a, in a couple of weeks. Um, it was the artist's request to do it 100% analog, the whole thing. Um, and so, I mean, I haven't done this since, you know, what I was talking about a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and even mix it so it literally never touched a computer and um, and it's fun it's fun to commit and it, and it does it does force you to do that stuff and it, and it doing it reminded me how valuable that stuff is to make those decisions also track count you know we got 23 tracks and you got to make them count you know and it's like and there was a moment when we we did one last guitar part of this song and it was like, I think we're done. And the artist or somebody in the room said, maybe we should. And I remember thinking, you know, we'll have to try this. And then looking and going, you know what? We can't. We're literally out of tracks. Like, that's it. And he was like, oh, good. Okay, good. That's good. And we all were just kind of like, that's a that's a good feeling, actually, to let, let the limitation decide for you at a moment. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so I, I I think commitment's huge, and and I'd look forward uh, in two weeks to going and doing the rest of this thing. Um, and mixing on analog is fun as hell too, and making those mix prints are are fun. Um, so when this came up, were you like, hell yeah, I can't wait to go back, or was it kind of like, oh shit? <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit of both. Yeah, it was a. Uh, yeah, it was. Th- this will be. It was. This will be fun, and then reality set in of like, oh, like. I really need to make sure I remember how to do all this stuff and I need to be on the ball. Um, and yeah, I, I can't say that I would go and make every record like that today because obviously Pro Tools brings a million great things, but uh, the thing I miss about analog tape the most um, and that I liked the most with that was the process. It's just the, you have to be focused, you have to listen, there's nothing to look at, and what's on tape is what's on tape, and that's it. So um, you really need to make a commitment. I know I keep using that word, but... Um, it's a great word yeah, for this. Yeah, it really is, and it's like... Um, and that's what we had to do before. And yeah, when you make the mix, like when we print the mix, I think I remember even kind of having to tell the artist, like, like, you you know, he listened and he's like, he likes it. And I was like, are you sure? Because this is it. And I think I, I don't even know that he fully understood uh, that that was the deal, that there's no going back to it. You know, well, how, how old is he? Twen- late, late 20s. Yeah. So he probably never really made a record that way before. No. Or maybe he did. No, I don't think so. I'm just assuming. No, no, no. I think it's a safe assumption. And I think you're right. And I think it was, quite honestly, um, and I don't mean this in in a negative way to him at all, but I think think it was uh, largely like a romanticized thing for him, you know, like, and I think a lot of younger folks that I meet that... It, I always kind of joke that the, the the guys who romanticize tape tend to be the ones who've never used tape, you know. And it's That's like funny you say that, man, because like uh, we get this a lot in the metal world with the drummers. They, you know, it's really normal for a drummer to come in and be like, "I want it all natural, 
no samples, no edits. Really? And it's like, do you know what that means yeah. on a metal record? Like, that's virtually impossible, dude. Um, and they'll oftentimes point out a record that's totally edited and totally replaced. Yeah. Be like, I want it to sound like this guy. And it's like, okay, you've never made a natural sounding record before. That's why you want to do this. You just don't know what's involved. And I need to break it to you gently so that. Yeah, you know, yeah. So that I don't ruin the vibe, but like, it's just coming from a romanticized ideal. It's not. Yeah, they don't really know what's involved. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Because I feel like most drummer, like when you said that, it's like, man, a metal record. If you played a drummer, a drum track that was had none of that, like they'd probably be like, that sounds like garbage, or so. You know, it's like, yeah, that's actually exactly what's happened to me. Um. I've had a few bands who were generally younger, meaning like, you know, 18 through 22 or something, sure. who wanted to do that. And then you gave them a mix with like all natural drums. They're like, well, why does the snare sound like that? Totally. Yeah. It's like, that's what a snare sounds <laughs> that's like. That's what dude. they sound like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even, yeah. Totally. That's funny. Yeah. yeah, why does it not sound like a cannon going off? Right, totally, yeah. Because <laughs> well, your drummer didn't play it like a cannon. Right, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've got some questions here from our listeners for you oh, that cool. I'd like to get to before we finish up, because they've got some pretty good questions. Sure. Um, so here's one from Colton David Hunter, which is uh, I know when Colton. recording, you know Colton? Uh, uh, no, maybe that's a different Colton, sorry. <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. Um, or maybe you do know. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Well, Colton, meet Sean. Okay. Uh, when recording overdriven guitars equipped with single coil pickups, how do you deal with all the extra noise? Right. Thanks. Okay, yeah. Well, mm. um, honestly, the the first thing I do is just, it's the find the spot in the room deal, you know? And I, I don't know, first of all, I don't know if I'm going to have any... Um, amazing answers to this question I, I'm not like a, a huge guitar expert I don't think of myself as that but um, what you just said is actually my first answer for dealing with that is find a better spot in the room yeah that's that's always the like the the fix for me and it's really just yeah just turn it to you know put them in a swivel chair and 360 slowly and move around the room until until it's the the smallest amount of noise uh, possible and um, and hope that it doesn't mean that guitar players lying on his back on the ground, you know, or something like that. Cause uh, I've done that before. <laughs> yeah. Right. Been, we've been in those situations where it's like, Oh man, you're going to, that sucks. I'm sorry. You got to play over there. <laughs> like, uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's my trick. Yeah. There's kind of no changing the, uh, I guess the physics of how that all works and yeah. picks it picks up the noise totally you just have to deal um yeah. here's one from enrico rotolo which is a multi-part question and feel free to answer as much or as little okay as you want but he says can you explain the guitar and bass tones on take this to your grave also can you give us a breakdown of the vocal arrangements on take this to your grave i've noticed there's a lot of third below vocal harmonies in a few songs which is super incoming for the style Patrick Stump is an extremely underrated vocalist songwriter. I'd love to have some more insight on the vocals. You can almost hear some of the songs are out of his range at that time, like in Patron Saint of Liars and Fakes being in F major, D minor. All right, Enrico's 
obviously studied his harmony. Yeah, he knows what's going on more than I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm, that's good, Enrique. Um, okay, yeah, so the first uh, bass and the guitar tones, um, from what I remember, it, it really isn't too... Uh, too crazy. The the bass tone. I don't remember the bass, but it was probably a Fender Pier jazz bass or something like that. And honestly, the amp. I'm I'm pretty sure it was an old Ampeg B15. Um, and I do okay. I do remember one thing. I didn't like DIs at that time, and so there was no DI. It was just a, a microphone on the amp, and it would have been a FET 47 because that's what the studio had. Um, and and it would have ran through a bunch of you know fancy vintage equipment because that's what the studio had. It was a a Neve. Uh, um, Neve channel strip, uh, specifically a 33102 or whatever the modules are on the console, um, and an 8058, and it probably would have had EQ, you know, the typical, um, and then um, Neve compressors, most likely. Uh, yeah, so that was. The, uh, I do remember one thing. Um, about the bass in particular, where for whatever reason we would we really wanted a brighter bass tone, and the strings we would change them, and they would seem to go flat like like remarkably quickly. And so I think we changed bass strings like multiple times a day. I know that sounds insane, but like and- no, that no, that sounds. 100% in line with my experience of oh. bass strings and brightness. Okay, all right. That makes me feel better because uh, I think we all thought we were insane at the time um, and and we we joked about him having these weird sweaty acid finger hands like uh, like fucking up the bass. <laughs> but, well, like, it, like one of the things I love on metal records is using pro steels uh, which are very high-end and attacky bass strings and they were mm-hmm. literally go dead if you've got a decent player within an hour or an hour and a half because uh, it will change bass strings every single song oh, and sometimes you know if we do the whole album on bass in two days that's like sometimes 10 to 15 packs of strings that's a, yeah days. that's serious yeah. business that's good okay good um yeah and let's see for the guitars um the guitars would have been man um uh, I think it was a Les Paul. I think it was my Les Paul I had a while back. Um, nothing fancy. Um, and I probably, definitely a Mesa Boogie Dual Wreck was the guitar head. Um, and honestly, from there, I don't really remember. It wasn't... Um, I can tell you that we did the record in three different stages. So it was totally different setup each with each one. Excuse me, meaning that... Um, the first three songs we did were, uh, I don't know if these are the proper names of them because they would change them later, but as I remember them, Dead on Arrival, Saturday, and I think something Homesick at Space Camp. And, and those were three demos that we made that uh, those demos went on the record as is, like we didn't remix them. So that was one set of recording sessions. And then when the labels, they were trying to get signed, the labels asked us for more songs we did two more and it was called uh, or at least the titles I know was Where's Your Boy Tonight and I think Hey Chris um, and we did those as a separate set of recordings and submitted those and and those also did not get remixed so those went on the record as is and then months later we did the rest of the record so it's a little bit funny because those tones are t- t- probably changing a lot um, and um yeah, so sadly, that's the best I can give you for the, the guitar stuff. Um, the vocal stuff, uh, I mean, hands down, that's Patrick, man. He's, you know, he, he needs and deserves all the credit on that because, um, and, and I do agree, I think Patrick 
uh, is an underrated singer if he's considered underrated. I don't, I don't consider him underrated. I just consider him great, and um, <laughs> and I think he's a great songwriter too. And he just has a knack for harmonies, and he can come up with those on the spot. and And he worked really hard at them. But um, in terms of like the third underneath, I can't remember a specific intent of uh, of doing that um i do remember spending a lot of time on it and it was really like patrick was heavily influenced by queen i'm pretty sure at the time um and uh okay i can give you one tech thing um he was talking about the range of patrick actually that, that's an interesting point because we did track patrick's vocals on that record to the tape machine um and there were a number of songs where he couldn't sing the high harmonies. And so what I did was I slowed the tape machine down. Um, so it was in a lower pitch. And, and then he sang them. So he actually sang those lower than his real... Than, and then I sped the machine back up. So, they, so they're higher, which I think is also maybe a queen vocal trick. But um, So the, yeah, there probably are a number of ones on there that were out of Patrick's range that through the use of the tape machine we were able to make happen. Um, so, so Enrico actually has some pretty good ears. That's pretty. That's pretty. Pretty great, man. Yeah, yeah. Pretty impressive. Here's one from Chris Kelsey, which is, thanks for taking the time to answer some of our questions, Sean. Not even exaggerating. Maybe this place is the same as my favorite pop punk mix and quite possibly my favorite mix ever period i know the album was engineered by seth henderson and i've always been curious as to how extensive the mixing process was for that album did you use all the tones from the guitars and basses seth capture or did you re-empty eyes how much sample reinforcement replacement did you do to the drums were the vocals tuned at all they don't sound like it I ask because I find the album has an extremely natural sound to it, especially in comparison to all the things that Seth engineers and mixes himself. And yet the album sounds punchy and huge simultaneously. It's a sound I have been seeking ever since I first listened to that record that I have yet still to fully achieve. And I have inclination that a lot of it comes from the mixing phase. I would love if you could shed some light on this. Thank you for your time. And these are some detailed, long questions. Wow. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's, uh, th uh, what was his name again? Chris Kelsey. Chris. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. That's, um, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered, uh, and honored <laughs> that yeah, you think that, um, and, uh, yeah, let's see. Um, so for that record, um, well, a few things. You're right, I did just mix it. Um, and uh, I the, the guitars uh, were the sounds they gave me, for sure. I, I don't think I got any DIs on that. Um, and the bass, quite honestly, I don't remember. It, it would have... Uh, a lot of times when I get a bass, um, if, if the amp is not uh, great, then usually my first thing, to be honest, is I just take the DI, get rid of the amp track, and and I use a reamp uh, situation in Pro Tools, um, not an actual amp. Um, I, I like that a lot, and I don't remember. I'm sorry if I use that or not on that record. Um, I really don't remember. But um, in regards to what was so you were talking about the organic uh, part of that. Um, that that's really cool that you bring that up because. Um, yeah, let's see. Or well, no, let's see. The vocals. I'm trying to go in order here. Um, I didn't add any additional tuning unless the unless the band asked for it when they came over, and I don't remember them asking for that. Um, 
so yeah, so I think that that's however they came to me, and I I thought his vocals were fantastic. I that when I got that record, that was my favorite thing. Um, I thought he was really great, and when he came over to the studio, I was um, I was really uh, excited to meet him, and, and I remember telling him how much I thought his vocals were killer, um, and really drove that record home. But um, yeah, so uh, and I, and and when I get a vocal like that, um, it really it's fun because whatever sound you give it is just like yeah it's just an instinctual reaction which is ideal i think for any uh any sound or any record you can make if, if you're working off instinct that's by by far the best one and and that's not always the case but those are the ones you want to cherish um and and i felt that way with his vocal but um in terms of the organicness of the of the mix um yeah it's interesting because i don't um I don't. I get asked to to do projects like that. Um, I think probably because of Fall Out Boy and some of the earlier things. Uh, and, and admittedly, I, I'll listen to modern um, records in that genre, and and they sound incredible to me. And and they sound also like so like I guess slick or really done up and it's usually a thing where I go that sounds amazing and I have no idea how to do that and I don't think I uh, know how to do that and um, and I've tried to copy those things and have failed miserably <laughs> uh, and and I hate you know what's really funny about polished super polished modern production uh, just and this is something that I've noticed um, on the internet lots of people, We'll talk shit about it and be like, it's all templates or it's all this or it's all that or it's easy. And it's like, it's actually not that easy. Not for to, me. Yeah. It's it's actually pretty damn difficult to make something sound that perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Until you try. I and I felt I've said that, too. I'm like, ah, that's that can't be that hard. And then you try. And at least for me, I I feel like I'm terrible at that at, at that. And so um, the only thing that I can resort to is trying to do what comes naturally to me. And and maybe for lack of a better description, I've always felt that I like, thing, I like things hitting hard. I definitely want them to. And I like things aggressive, but I like a natural sense like sensibility to things or what I consider natural. And obviously what everybody considers natural is different. Like we were talking about with the drummer guy, you know, it's like um, that word can be taken out of context. But um, anyway, uh, so I'm really glad that you like the way that sounds. And for me, that's just how, that's what I kind of achieve to do. And sometimes I worry because I think that a lot of times people think that it's not nearly done up enough or not nearly in your face or slick enough or whatever. Um, and then I have other friends who probably listen to it and go, man, that's way too slick, you know? Um, and that's just kind of my, my pace. That's where I sit. And, um, and so I'm glad it resonates with somebody. That's awesome. Um, cause you, you, you never know, you know, I think it's really important to have good self-awareness. Um, and to kind of know what your just know what your artistic identity is. It's a, it's a good thing, yeah. In my opinion. So yeah, Josh yeah. Josh Adams says, "Hey Sean, take this to your grave is one of my favorites. The panning in that album for vocals, guitars, and really everything seems very absolute. Like it's either a hundred percent left, a hundred percent right, or totally center. Is this true? And do you have any comments about panning this way?" 
Uh, yes, I think he's 100% correct. Uh, <laughs> that, that is right. And uh, those are my comments. I, I like left, center, and the right. Um, I just like that. Uh, I've tried, sometimes I'll do in between. I, I know that, uh, you know, like uh, Chris Lord Algae, I think, is well known for that. And, um, and there are other guys, I think, who are well known for that. Um, and to my ear, I, it, that's just what I like. And you know why? It's simple. Like, I can't make decisions of all the in-betweens. I don't like my brain needs to go. It's here. It's here or it's here. And that's it. Like, and if my pan pot on Pro Tools only had those three positions, plus if I could have an auto panner to sweep, I'd be happy. I, <laughs> I'd be fine. It just clears things up for me. Um, th- yeah. The reason I guess behind it is, is the, it clears things up. I, I, I really would just want to get crap out of the way, you know? I want to get stuff out of the center that doesn't need to be in the center. And the stuff that needs to be on the sides, I wanted to get it all the way over to the sides. Um, and um, so anyway, yeah. So here's one from Vidix Ferenc, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, but uh, your mixing style really enhances emotions in the songs. They're really warm and interesting, but still really radio-friendly. How do you achieve this? Uh, that's a that seems like a tough question to answer. Um, that's cool though. I mean, I, I I like that question because um, let's see. Uh, wait, sorry. Can you read the beginning of it again? Uh, yeah. It was a word in there. Your mixing style really enhances emotions yeah. in the songs. That that's what I was thinking. Yeah. So I, I like that you touched about the emotional aspect. Um, again, I don't I don't think of myself as a um, hyper. Um, uh, like a master mixer or a master producer, any of those things. I, but the one thing I, I really uh, try and hit is like that emotional content. Like to me, that's that's still to this day, um, that's why I listen to music, man. That's it. It's the emotional reaction. If I feel like shit or if I feel depressed or if I feel pumped up, um, man, music is right there by my side to help me with that stuff. And um that's why I listen to it, and it's why I love it, and I think it's like, yeah, it's like why I live my life, man. And um, and so, to me, if I can only get one thing right in a recording, which I don't always, but I try, is uh, is that emotional uh, context. Um, and if if the ba- if if there's something in the record that resonates within me, and it doesn't have to be the perfect song, and it doesn't have to be the the perfect drum beat or best guitar part or best harmony it can it can be one of those things or uh, hopefully a lot of them but if there's something that resonates with me then i try and just like focus on that and let that let my instincts roll um is and take them as far as as they can be taken just based off that and then and then you know there's obviously times where you got to start thinking and putting your brain into it and and I try and limit that as much as possible, and I have found that over the years that the ones where I put my brain in more too much are the ones that I I don't. Um, when I go back and listen to it again, I don't I don't love as much as the other ones. Um, so yeah, so I, that that's kind of it. Um, and then the rest of the you know the rest of the the mixing, the warmth or whatever. I think that's just your taste, you know, and it's your ability. Um, there are plenty of mixes of my mo- lots of mixes I go back and listen to and I don't I think man I, I 
I owe that guy money back. You know, <laughs> it's like, um, and uh, yeah, and you just got to do what you got to do with what you can do at the time. And I think that's just kind of like, there's no, there's no way to it. It's, it's just trying and, and just keep trying and, and hope. And when something resonates, then figure out what that was and maybe try and find more of that. But to me, it's all about, um, it's finding the right, the right source. You know, if the source is resonating with you, you're kind of on autopilot and, and you kind of get a, you get a little bit of a free pass almost, you know, um, which is pretty sweet. Uh, Sounds like once uh, your instincts kick in, um, but you're pretty confident with them and not much second guessing. Like That's the best. If you can do that, yeah. that's the best. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, sometimes I think it takes a while to develop that, uh, that kind of confidence, but I think you can bring it about quicker if you do some of the things that we talked about earlier, like get used to committing to sounds, like you will force your development by forcing yourself to commit because you're going to have to learn to trust your instincts. Yeah I, I, yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'd love to add another comment to that because I do think as somebody coming up, it's funny, when, when I was young, I actually felt it was not, not by any choice. It was really easy for me to follow my instincts because I was too dumb. I, I, wasn't, I was too dumb to know any otherwise, you know, and it was like, and, and nobody could tell me any different. This is what I was going to do. And, um, and then as you start learning, almost it changes. And, like, and it, it, you kind of learn about record making and... Uh, it's a funny kind of thing. And then, and, and now, you know, I, later in my career, like, you know, I think you try and balance your instincts and your knowledge, but, um, but going based on what you were saying, going off what you were saying about, uh, just try and like commit, um, my biggest piece of advice to anybody, um, trying to learn to trust their instincts is to create, create something and, 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 do it quickly. Don't don't slave. Don't go back. Don't do revisions. Treat it like it's an analog console and like an analog tape machine, and create for this for the purpose of creating, um, and then move on and do another one. And as you do those, you will only be able to go off of your instinct um, if you keep it short like that. If you if I had had this technology when I started, I think. I probably wouldn't be sitting here doing a podcast. I think I'd still be recalling the same fucking mix from 15 years ago. And it'd be a nightmare. And it's a tr- it's a difficult thing for me still to this day now having those things. But And I think if you're coming up, that's got to be really tough. And I think it, limitations are so important when you're creating. And I'm, I feel really blessed that I had some of those when I started. And that would, yeah. So uh, like you said, commit like and uh, move on. It's almost like if you started in the analog days, you had the disadvantage of thing, some things taking a lot longer or not really being possible, like uh, certain types of edits or whatnot. But you also had the benefit of being forced to commit, get your shit together with your sounds. Yeah. Um, we, uh, you know, on Nail the Mix, we have a monthly mixing competition. We get uh, over 500 entries a month. And 
one thing I've noticed with a lot of people who are first trying this stuff is that they just spend way too long on mixes. And those tend to be the worst entries. Um, the guys that tend to win um, and who have also gone on to have careers or are starting their careers, they just tend to be faster. Like, they'll get it done in an afternoon yeah. or whatnot. It's just... Uh, I I do know that there are some guys who are really awesome, uh, like, for instance, uh, Colin Richardson, famous metal producer, mixer, who notoriously took forever, forever on everything. But uh, I think that that's more of the exception. I think that mm. uh, the guys that I know that are really killer, for the most part, are pretty fast. Mm. Um, yeah. It makes it, it makes sense, you know. Yeah, it, I mean, there's. I feel like what you said about the, you know, the being too dumb. That there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom to that. There's a point where uh, engaging your conscious mind too much with uh, an artistic project can really start to ruin. It. Yeah, I mean, because man, at the end of the day, like when. We're making records, you know, we're, we're making something that somebody wants to listen to and have an emotional reaction to, you know, and and I know for me as a kid, um, that was all that mattered when I listened to music. That was it. Um, and I think that I think that that's still the case. I think that that will never not be the case. And I, I hope I hope that when that I hope that day never changes, but like I think ultimately mm-hmm. that's why people listen to music and um, and there's absolutely something to be said for slaving over something and making a masterpiece and that's fantastic. But um, I think that I feel that a lot of times when people do that, um, what they're slaving over are um, are the details. They're not changing the infrastructure of something and they're not changing the the bulk of the emotional content um, and. Um, and I think that's the issue with today, with like with the Pro Tools and all that stuff, is that you can pull all your faders down and you can totally change your infrastructure. And um, I don't think you get too many opportunities in a song to react to the the to react to the music and build that infrastructure. Uh, I think you only get really one or two shots, you know. And after that, mm-hmm. then. I think you're it's you're losing and and then and, but if you can build that and then you can work on these details and these guys who are these masters who do that they, I think they've learned to separate those two processes um, and and they're they're detailing things and you can detail forever that's fun stuff to do uh, but I don't I feel like in in the successful cases they never missed the infrastructure they they kept that in place um, yeah I think you're absolutely right yeah um, well dude with that. Um, going to end this because we've been going for a while but uh i really appreciate you coming on no this is good this is good uh i I appreciate you coming on and being so open with everything and sharing with us and it's been a pleasure talking to you yeah uh man same here i i really appreciate you having me um it's great yeah Awesome, man. Well, have a great rest of your day. Okay, you too. Take it easy. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit URM.com slash podcast and subscribe today.